2 Samuel chapter 9 in our series, Rich and Poor Together. Rich and Poor Together. Lord, teach us about your diverse kingdom that not only unites people across racial and denominational and gender differences, but also brings people together across economic differences and social differences as well. So if we don't see this vision that's laid out for us in the people in, in the Bible, if we don't see it, then it's hard for the world to get it. But God has called for us to be together and not to be segregated or separated because of race, class, or gender. 2 Samuel chapter 9, let's pray. Father God, thank you that we get to be in your house and we get to enjoy you and fellowship with you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you loved us first. Thank you that you loved us when we weren't even thinking about loving you. We were loving ourselves and other things. But your love broke through and transformed us. For you demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. I'm so glad that he paid the price that I could not pay. I'm so thankful for his blood that was shed in my place. His righteous life for my broken, sinful, wretched life. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sins, our sins, on your body on that cross and giving us your forgiveness, giving us your mercy, forgiving us your perfection, your righteousness. Thank you for the gospel. And thank you that no man took your life. You laid it down. And if you laid it down, you also had the power to take it back up again. You rose from the dead. We're here today worshiping a living God. We know that you are alive because you're alive in us. We're new people. We're not perfect people. We've just been transformed. We've been changed from the inside out. We haven't arrived, but Lord, we're on a new destination. We're pressing towards the mark of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we're so thankful, Lord. And as we read today from 2 Peter you called us out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. And we're declaring your praises. And now we come to your word to learn. Teach me that I may teach your people. I can't wait to hear what you're going to say today. Because you don't need me to speak. But you will use me. And I pray, Lord, use me today. Let me preach as if it's the last time I get to preach. Because, Lord, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds Give your people ears to hear what thus saith the Lord. Give us the capacity and grace to live it out. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Come on, put your hands together and give Jesus a praise. Come on, let's give him some glory. He is worthy. He's an awesome God. He loves us. There are times where a story can be so devastating so sad, even so depressing, that in order to get through the story, 
you got to start with the conclusion. You got to start with the happy time. You got to start with how it all wraps up together at the end and everyone is happy and feeling good. And that's what I want to do today. I want to start with the end in mind. Because it's a good story at the end. But it's a messy story at the beginning. It's a hard story in the middle. But the God who works all things together for good works it out. And I I just want to give you some hope by reading the ending before we jump into the nastiness of this story. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 13. Do you have it? Do you have it? Do you have it? Amen. I gave you time to find it. 2 Samuel is not always in the same place you left it last time, so it moves on you. But the Bible says, so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. So we see a lame man in a position of prosperity, even authority. We see a lame man who is sitting at the table with the king and all of the king's sons. When before, he was not at this table. And when we look at the story today, we will see where he was. But we start with the end in mind and we see good things happening, just like we have to do sometimes when life is hard. And every now and then we got to go to the book of Revelation and read the last chapter to be reminded that we win. But homeboy won in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 13. And he's sitting at a table, having been a poor man, now he's sitting with wealthy folks. And it's an encouragement to us to not segregate to not separate, not only based on economics, but even on physical abilities. David did not have a segregated table. He did not have a separated table. He had an all-inclusive table, and he allowed this lame man to sit there at the table like one of his sons. The rich and the poor came together. And David in this story, as we'll see, is a type or a picture of Jesus Christ, who in his kindness invites us to his table. The God who, Psalm 23 says, prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. The God who invites us in and who feeds us and who clothes us, who anoints us, who blesses us, who heals us, who hears us, who hugs us. We see a little bit, a bit of that through David. But we ultimately see it through Jesus Christ. And the question is, will God see it through us? Will we invite folks in who are different? Will we invite folks in who are struggling, who are poor, who are lame, who are disabled, who can't bring anything to the table but themselves. And we say that's enough. Because God values your personhood, we value your personhood. So come on to the table 
And so he's a type of Christ, David is. Look at Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, where the Bible says, Then he also said to him who invited him. Jesus was invited to a dinner by a Pharisee. And Jesus said, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection. That's the kind of table that Jesus has. That's the kind of table that Jesus encourages us to have. We need to watch out for people who only want to help people who can help them back. We need not be those people. And Sometimes you can tell a lot about a person not by how they treat the person who has power, but how we treat people who lack power. That's how we tell a lot about ourselves. And Jesus says, grab maimed people, lame people, blind people, poor people, and don't sit them off on a side table like some of us do at Thanksgiving with the kids. You know how we put the kids over on a kiddie table. It's shorter and all that stuff. And the meat has been cut up for them. And all. No, Jesus says put them at the big table with the good dishes. Bring them on in because they're your brothers and they're your sisters. That's our Jesus. So let's quote these scriptures too. But when we think about our story today, who is Mephibosheth? Why is he lame? And why is he sitting at the king's table? Well, let's go back to chapter 4 to learn about Mephibosheth. Now we go from the ending where it's happy and it's good. And we go back to the beginning where it's a little nasty and painful and even dreadful. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. The Bible reads, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So we see how Mephibosheth became lame. He became lame at the age of five because he was dropped. So point number one today is that Mephibosheth was dropped. He was dropped by his nurse who had heard bad news, devastating news, that King Saul, who was Mephibosheth's grandfather, had died on the field of battle. And not only did grandpa die, but his dad, Jonathan, died on the same day on the same battlefield. And not only did Mephibosheth's father and grandfather die, but 1 Samuel says that when this battle took place, two of his uncles died as well. So on one day, this young man at five years old lost his grandfather, his father, and two uncles. His nurse, who hears the news, 
is now fearful that the people who killed the king and the prince are now coming towards them. So she makes haste and she picks up the five-year-old to run. And as she's running, she inadvertently drops him. And she drops him in such a way where he becomes paralyzed. So he got dropped on the same day his grandfather, his uncles, and his daddy died. His whole life was forever changed for the worse in one day. What do you say to a five-year-old who just lost everything? And now he's not even in line to become king anymore. So the kingly throne has passed away from the house of Benjamin. What do you say to a five-year-old who can't walk, who can't run, who does not have use of his limbs from the waist down? What do you say? He's in a tough place. He's crippled now. And it was not his fault. Somebody dropped him. And it hurt him. And so I just want to stop by today to ask a question, and that is, how many of us have been dropped and we're still bearing with and dealing with the wounds of having been dropped by someone who was supposed to protect us? And we got dropped either accidentally or even intentionally. And we're still walking with the wound, if we're even walking at all for some of us. We've been dropped by our parents who were meant to protect us, but they dropped us. They didn't care for us, didn't provide for us. We were dropped by a father who was absentee. We were dropped by a mother who was more into the bottle than she was into giving me milk in a bottle. We, we got dropped because of hard circumstances. The temptation saying Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And so Papa is everywhere but home. And some of us have been dropped because we don't know our fathers. And we've been dealing with the father wound ever since we could remember. We're angry and we don't know why. We've gone to counseling and we've seen psychologists. We've gone to pastors and we're realizing that somewhere deep down there's a wound because of our parents. They've hurt us. They let us down. We got dropped by grandparents who cussed us out. who said that we wouldn't amount to anything and sit your little raggedy behind down in that corner. You should be seen and not heard. We got dropped. We were told to go into the other room when certain company came by. We were dropped. Some of us have been dropped by husbands because you don't need to be a child to be dropped. We've been dropped by husbands who made vows at an altar saying, I'm going to love you in sickness and in health for better or worse and richer or poorer. But soon as the honeymoon wore off, then the so-called love changed and the wife got dropped or a husband got dropped by a wife. And you're sitting there saying, why did this have to happen? I didn't see this coming. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And now if you can walk, you're walking with a limp. Because somebody else dropped you. Maybe you've been dropped by a school system that taught you how to take standardized tests, but they didn't, but they didn't teach you how to learn and how to think. 
You got dropped by a school system that did not prepare you for life because teachers who aren't paid a whole lot are just trying to manage through the end of the day. And so they've got all of these kids in the classroom. It's overrun, and they don't have enough help. It's a hard system to learn in. You got dropped by a teacher who didn't see your potential, who said that you couldn't learn, but didn't recognize you just learned differently. The people with authority, they, they, they put you in these boxes and they, they drop you. Or you were a good athlete and they dropped you by passing you along, even though you couldn't read well. They just pass you along and let the next teacher, you know, maybe he'll make money bouncing a ball or something. They, they dropped you. Or what if you got dropped by a doctor? who is so tired of seeing case after case, they just write your child a prescription and they don't recognize your child just has energy. And now we're going to give them some Ritalin and we're going to call, just, just here, here, here. You've been dropped. You've been medicated. You've been left. And now you become addicted to this medicine and you can't function without it. I'm not saying there aren't legitimate cases. Don't get me wrong. But I would imagine for every legitimate case, there's probably many illegitimate cases where we just drop kids and say, hey, just give them that. Then we've been dropped by a government that cuts policies that can help lower-income people. Yet the government judges lower-income people for not making the choices that the government think they should make because they don't have bootstraps to pull themselves up by. And you're telling me I should take care of my kids, but I'm trying to work jobs that the minimum wage ain't doing nothing for us. I got to work at night. My kids are at home. I can't send them to the after-school program because policy has cut funding to help these agencies in our neighborhoods. So the government has dropped us off. I'm not government dependent, but man, I pay taxes and I need government assistance sometimes. Some of us are like that. But then some of us have been dropped by a legal system. As soon as they see us, the charges become harsher. The patrolling becomes more intense. And we get treated in ways, some of us, that our counterparts of other hues would never get treated in, we've been dropped by a system. A system that doesn't work for some of us. A system that benefits others and hurts others. We've been dropped by a system. When we go out to get a job, and my application looks just as good as my counterpart's application, but they won't hire me because of what I look like and where I come from. And you may say that doesn't happen, let me say to you, it just hasn't happened to you. You've been dropped and you feel unfair, unfairly treated. You've been dropped by a correctional system. It doesn't rehab you, rehabilitate you. It teaches you how to become a better criminal when you get out. And the way the system is, it sets you up to go back in once you go back out. You've been dropped by a church. This is bad English, but it's right. 
ain't no hurt like church hurt. They dropped you when you got a divorce. They treated it like that was the unpardonable sin. Or they dropped the young man because he got his girlfriend pregnant. The people of God who are supposed to extend mercy like they've gotten mercy, they judge folk in the church and put them down and treat them harshly. You got dropped by a preacher who prayed on you rather than pray for you. You got dropped, and it hurts, and you're struggling. But I want to say this, that being dropped doesn't have to make you a victim. But we know that it can hinder your upward mobility in life. This five-year-old boy got dropped. No fault of his own. Good intentions by the nurse, but now he's suffering for the rest of his life. There are people here who have been dropped, and you're wondering if you're going to make it. But remember, I read the end of the story. You're going to make it. But here's what else happens when people get dropped. They get labeled. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 9 now. It's about to get thick now. They not only drop you, but they label you. 2 Samuel 9. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? What we see here is King David, a man after God's own heart, a man who keeps his word. Do I have any men in here who keep their word? Because he made a promise to his friend Jonathan that he would show kindness to his descendants when he ascended to the throne. So Jonathan comes from the line of Benjamin. His dad is Saul, who has a grievance against David. He's threatened by David, tries to kill David. But David and Jonathan have this bond that can't be broken. And these guys make a covenant together. That I'm going to watch out for your family, you watch out for my family, if something should happen to me. And so Jonathan dies on the field of battle. David gets established in the kingdom of Israel. All 12 tribes are under him now. He's winning victories. He's being blessed. But he's not so blessed that he doesn't forget what he says to his friend. And he asks the question, is there anyone left of Saul's house that I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? I made a covenant with Jonathan. I love men who keep their word. I love men who keep their covenant. What's a covenant, you may ask? A covenant is a sacred, binding agreement between two parties that has benefits as well as stipulations. That's a covenant. It's more than a contract. Because when you write a contract, sign a contract, you can find a good lawyer to get you out of a contract. But when you make a covenant, God is involved in that thing. And when God gives his word, he expects us to give our word and keep our word like we expect him to keep his word even when it gets hard. So it's a sacred agreement. It involves God. That's why we sign marriage covenants, not marriage contracts. That's why you get married in church and you have a preacher come and the, uh, we pray, we kneel at the altar, we take communion. We're inviting God into the wedding day. 
But we forget that he wants to be involved in the marriage. We make a covenant because bad times are coming, hard times are coming. But I'm not leaning on my feelings. I'm leaning on the commitment that I made. I'm leaning on God. David says, I'm going to bless my friend because we made a covenant together. So it's a sacred binding agreement between two parties that has benefits and stipulations. So verse 2 says, and there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. So Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. So Ziba was the servant of the estate. Or as we learned a couple of months ago, he was the steward of the house. So he is running the house because both of his masters are gone. So in a sense, Ziba has made himself the unofficial heir of the estate. So the king says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? They call Ziba. They know Ziba is running the house. Ziba comes in and he says, yes, here I am. Then David says in verse 3, is there still or is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So I told you this is the second point, and that is Mephibosheth was labeled. Ziba was the steward of the house who made himself the unofficial heir. Hang with me here. Ziba knows that there is a descendant, a rightful heir to the property. He knows it. He knows where he is because later in the chapter, it says that he is staying at the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. So he knows where he's staying. Pause here. When you're low income or poor or homeless and you don't have a home, you got to stay with somebody. You don't have your own residence. You, you, you got to stay. And, and, and who you stay with this week may be different than who you stay with next week. You, you got to stay with people. And so this servant knew where Mephibosheth was staying. And he knew who he was staying with. And he even knew the condition that he had, that he was lame in his feet. The reason why he knows where he is is because he has to keep an eye on him because he, again, is the rightful heir to this estate. But he's trying to keep that under wraps because he's not trying to give up all this power that he inherited unlawfully. So he says to King David, yeah, that's somebody. But watch this, though. You ain't going to want him because he's lame in the feet. Because I don't think much of him. So I assume you're not going to think much of him. Who wants to care about lame folk? And Zeba is low down. He doesn't even say Mephibosheth's name to the king. He said, yeah, that's somebody. And he's lame. He labeled this man. And a label is a negative pronouncement. A label is when other folks define you so that they can confine you. That's what a label is. They, 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 they define you 
so that they can confine you. They limit you so that they can prohibit you. A label is a limitation put on people who have less power by people who have more power. They label. Has anyone here ever been labeled before? You ever been labeled where somebody said, you're disabled? As if that description is your whole definition. There's more to you than being disabled. But people who label you want to put you in a box with locks and throw away the key. And they want to limit you, and they want people to see you as a limited being with no potential. They want to limit you as someone who has a life that's less than stellar. You ever been labeled and folk call you poor? You ever been labeled and they call you homeless? As if that's all you are is homeless? That's so much more to you than being homeless. But people who label you, that's the box they put you in. Or don't ever get on drugs. Oh, yeah, Herb, you know Herb. He the one that was on drugs. Herb could have went on with his life and done some things, but people can't take Herb out of that box that they've labeled him. Or, you know, Sue is an alcoholic. You know, uh, John is on welfare. You know, Pete and them on Section 8. She's unemployed. He's elderly. He's an ex-con. She's a felon. You know they're in special ed, don't you? So-and-so can't read. I'm going to label this person as overweight. You know they have autistic children. You know these children have been adopted. You know so-and-so is mentally ill. You know they live in the inner city. You know that they are at risk. I don't know any kid or any adult who's not at risk. But put these labels on them to confine you. You know, she's divorced, you know. You know, she's a single parent, you know. You know that uh, 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 he's gay. You know, she's a lesbian, you know. Oh, that's a gangbanger. Stay away from that dude. Oh, that's a drug dealer right there. Label. No, that's a drug user. <clears throat> he's a thug. That's a Muslim right there. That's a Jew. You know, that person is undocumented, and that becomes their whole identity. They're illegal. How can anybody call other folk illegal on land that we, not we, that they stole from other people? You illegal. But we label, and these Labels have power. You know, that's a Mexican right there. Because with the label come stereotypes. And Mephibosheth was labeled. He's lame, David. You're not going to want him. Well, we overcome labels by knowing who we are. And by believing we are who God says we are. That's how I overcome a label. Because I've been labeled. Y'all know Pastor Chris is an angry black man. And that's what they try to put up about me to not listen to me or to put me down. You know, he's an angry black man. Well, number one, I'm a passionate black man. That you mistake my passion for anger, but guess what? When I read the book, ain't nothing wrong with anger when it's righteous. 
Ain't nothing wrong with anger when it's turning over tables of unjust systems, especially in religious places perpetrated by religious people. Ain't nothing wrong with being angry in a righteous way. So if I'm angry, I'll take that, but don't try to say he's an angry black man. Don't try to label a brother. But I'm in good company because Jesus was labeled. They said he was a glutton. They said that he was a wine-bibber. They said that he was a Samaritan. They said that he was demon-possessed. They labeled him, but Jesus knew who he was. <laughs> he knew he was the son of God. He knew he was the son of man. He knew he was the great I am. He knew he was Elohim. He knew he was El Shaddai. He knew he was the true vine. He knew he was the resurrection and the life. He knew he was the door of heaven. He knew he was the bread of life that came down from heaven. He knew he, who he was. So it didn't matter what other folks said about him. And that's why we come to church, to know who we are so that when the world tries to put labels on us, it don't work with us. And I'm not going to let my situation and my conditions define who I am. God defines who I am. And I'm going to go to Ephesians 1, and I'm going to read that I am blessed. I'm going to go to Ephesians 1, and I'm going to read that I am forgiven. I'm going to read that I am redeemed. I'm going to read that I am chosen. And I'm going to say, that's what I am, no matter what you try to say. But I got good news here. Although my boy Mephibosheth, who I want to call Method Man, I want to call him Method Man so bad. <laughs> Not Method Man, Method Man. He was dropped, and he was labeled, but he was blessed. Can I hit this real quick, and then we go home? He, he was blessed. Oh, he was blessed. Now, before I hit this now, I want you to look for the representation that's in this text, okay? I told you that David is a type of Jesus Christ who opens up his table, who wants to show kindness because of a covenant that he made with Jonathan. He's a type of Christ. But also in this, we are Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is a type of us. And Zeba is a type of Satan, the enemy. So hang with me. You, you got to see this. First thing I want you to see is that David, who represents Christ, paid no attention to what Zeba, who represents Satan, said about Mephibosheth's condition, who represents you and me. I'll say that one more time for the people in the back. David, who represents Christ, paid no attention to what Zeba, who represents Satan, said about Mephibosheth's condition, who represents me and you. Because in verses 3 and 4, Mephibosheth, I mean, Zeba says, he's lame in his feet. In other words, you ain't going to want him. How can he be productive? How can he be of value to you, O king? But David paid no attention. Because in verse 4, after Zeba said he's lame in his feet, the king said to him, where is he? So Zeba says he's lame. The king said, where is he? Because being lame doesn't matter to me. Because I love him because I made a covenant with his father to do right by him. So I don't care that he's lame. He could be blind, deaf, and mute. Don't matter. I love him. Where is he? Is what David says. Secondly, David, who represents Christ, sent and brought Mephibosheth, who represents you and me, out of Lodabar. Look at verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. So David said, I'm going to go get him. 
because I know he can't come to me. I've got to go to him. He's lame. He can't walk here. So I've got to send an entourage to him to pick him up and give him limousine esquire service to come back to Jerusalem. David said, I'm going to bring him out. And we're only here today because somebody brought us out. Uh, uh, we could not and would not go to King Jesus on our own. We didn't even know Jesus was asking about us when we were in Lodabar crippled. But our name was on his mouth because our name was in his mind and on his heart. And so King David is like, uh, uh, where is Mephibosheth? They said, Lodabar. He said, uh, get the Cadillacs ready and the limousines. Go pick him up. Bring him out. He can't come to us, but we're going to him. We can't come to God. God comes to us to bring us out. I wouldn't walk to him. I couldn't walk to him, but he walked to me to bring me out. Oh, he's a type of Christ, and I'm just like my boy, Method Man. <laughs> Thirdly, David called Mephibosheth by his name. Verse 6, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth. Like I said, Ziba didn't say his name. But as soon as he comes up in the king's presence, David says his name, Mephibosheth. How did David learn his name? Because Ziba didn't tell him. David must have done some inquiry. Who is this son of Jonathan, my main man? He has a son named Mephibosheth. And David said, bring him. And when he comes in, David calls him by name. Isn't it good when God knows your name and calls you by your name? Again, forget what the labelers call you. He knows your name. He calls you by name. Oh, but it gets better. It gets better. David who represents Christ, told Mephibosheth, who represents you and me, not to be afraid. Because in verse 7, David said to him, don't fear. Why would he fear? Because his grandfather was an enemy of David. And he doesn't know, Mephibosheth doesn't know, if David is about to take out vengeance on him. So he's afraid. But he doesn't know that the fear is about to be transformed into sonship. Adoption, love, which is why we don't need to be afraid in the presence of God because God invites us into, in as sons and daughters. We were once enemies of his, but because of his kindness, he invites us in, and we don't need to be afraid of God. He's our father, so there's no condemnation in God. He does not condemn me. I don't need to be afraid because perfect love casts out the fear of a slave. I'm a son now. I'm a daughter now. So David says, man, don't be afraid. And God is saying the same thing to us. Another thing we need to see is that David, who represents Christ, said to Mephibosheth, who represents you and me, he was going to show him kindness for his father's sake. David, who represents Christ, paid no attention to what Mephibosheth, who represents you and me, said when he put himself down. Don't miss this, please. Look at verse 8. After David said, I'm going to show you kindness, man. I'm going to give you the land that belonged to your grandfather and your father. And not only will I give you that land, I'm going to give you all the servants who work that land. That includes Ziba and his family and the people who work for him. Thirty-five people are now working for this lame man. That's kindness. That's good. And then David says, don't stop there. I'm going to let you eat at my table. 
with all my sons who are princes because you're a prince too. So when my man, Meph, hears this news, he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And I'm here to let you know that when he said that, when he put himself down, David didn't even pay that no attention. David didn't even listen to that. And you and I do the same thing. We put ourselves down. We've been put down for so long, we're used to putting ourselves down. And we call our own selves, like he called himself a dead dog, we call ourselves dummy. You dummy. And when we speak those words of death, God ain't even paying attention to that stuff. Or when we call ourselves, you're stupid, you're, I'm an idiot, man, I'm a failure. And God is like, why are you calling yourself things that I don't call you? Mephibosheth said, I'm a dead dog. David didn't even listen to that. And when you call yourself and when I call myself negative words, when we're in fits of frustration, God doesn't listen, but the devil does. And the devil says, oh, I'm going to feed his mind, her mind. Since they're talking negative about themselves, I'm going to feed their minds so they can believe what they're saying with their own mouths. So stop speaking negative about yourself. David, who represents Christ, puts Zeba, who represents Satan, under Mephibosheth's lame feet. Verse 9 through 11, he says, Zeba, come here. Zeba, I know you tried to gangster the estate away from this dude. You're going to serve him now. And Zeba has to say, yes, master, yes, king. And here's Mephibosheth like, when I woke up this morning, I, 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 I wasn't expecting all this to happen today. I'm in Lodabar doing my regular routine, and then an entourage escort comes to get me, take me to the palace. I don't know if they're going to kill me, but then the king blesses me. He knows my name. I don't know how he knows my name. Then he's giving me land and houses and servants. So life flipped for the poor man in one day. But it also flipped upside down for the arrogant, wealthy man who was stealing position from a poor man. And now he's got to be under Mephibosheth's lame feet. Didn't God say, I'll make your enemies a footstool? He can't even walk, but the enemy is under his feet. And spiritually, the enemy, Paul said that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. So walk like Satan is under your feet because he's been crushed by Jesus Christ, walk in the authority that God gives you. And as I move to a close, Mephibosheth's son Micah is getting blessed because his father is blessed. It says in verse 12 that Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. So he was a single parent, lame man. But now since he's getting blessed, his son is getting blessed. And Mephibosheth is now sitting at the table with all of the king's sons. God turned it around. And there he is at the table. And there's Absalom with all his hair flowing. There's Solomon. There's Amnon. Look at all these sons at the table. And Mephibosheth is sitting at the table. And if someone were to walk into the room and look at all of these princes around the table, 
they would not know which one of them had a condition under the table called lame feet. Because when you're sitting at the table of God, the table of grace, your position at the table is greater than your condition under the table because everything under the table is under the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, how you messed up, who messed you up. When the Lord says you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, you trust your position even though your condition is still a mess and in progress. God says, sit at the table, take your seat by grace. And then David said, look, look here, Mephibosheth. Bro, I ain't looking at your feet. I'm looking at your seat, man. And God is not looking at your feet. He's looking at your seat where he placed you. And Mephibosheth beats the odds because of the kindness of God displayed through David. Rich and poor together, he beat the odds. And, And I just wonder how many of us have beat the odds because of the kindness of God. How many of us are in places we are not supposed to be in? It's only because of the mercy and the favor of God who said, come here, I'm going to put you at this table. I'm going to give you authority. How many of us can also say not only has God helped us and given us power, but we've turned around and used some of the power he's given us to help people who have less power to come to our table. I know God blessed me, but he blessed me to be a blessing. I know he sat me at the table, but he wants me to sit some other folk at the table with me. So when I go, they come with me, and he calls us to invite them in. So David showed kindness to Mephibosheth because of a covenant that he made with Jonathan. He's a type of Christ. Who can we show God's kindness to? Who can we invite to the table? And if we can't invite them to the table, let's bring a buffet to them wherever they may be. Let's look for people this week. How can I serve? How can I bless those who are left out and destitute? How can I be intentional? Because classism, like racism, is systemic. And the only way to dismantle it is to be intentional. But before I go, I got two minutes as I was preparing this message this week, it broke my heart. I'm weeping in my study because I'm thinking about people in our church, people in my life who've been dropped, people who've been labeled. And it's impacted their upward mobility. Their walk has been hindered because of something that has happened to them, done to them. And I just said, God, Can I pray over your people today who feel like they've been dropped, who feel like they've been labeled? Can I pray over them today to let them know there's a blessing even in the pain? Can I pray for them, Lord, to let them know that what they're going through is not all there is? You've got something in store. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And if there's anyone here who says, Pastor, would you pray for me? I did get dropped, and I've been harboring bitterness. I've been struggling with my parents. I've been dropped by the world. I've been dropped by the church. I've been dropped by family. I've been dropped by a husband. I've been labeled by society. I've been believing the lies 
Do you want to humble yourself? Let me pray with you. Come forward now. Just come on. Just Kevin, please. Just come on. Come on, let me pray for you. Come on. I'm just here to let you know, man. God's got a plan. You may not see it. You may not feel it. He's got a plan. Yeah. Anybody else? You got dropped. You got labeled. It hurts. You're wondering if you're going to make it. Your Savior got dropped. Your Savior got labeled. But he resurrected. Anyone else? I just want to pray over you. Anyone else? Come on, don't carry that shame. Come on. Come on. Let me pray with you. Let me pray over you. They said you couldn't learn. They said you couldn't get well. They said you'd never make it. The devil is a liar. No spectators, only intercessors. Everyone bow your head and close your eyes. We are greater than the box people put us in. Because greater is God who is in us than that spirit of limitation that is in the world. We may have failed, but we are not failures. We've made mistakes. But there's no mistake about us in your sight, oh God. Parents left us. People didn't believe in us. But by the grace of God, we're here today. And with the living, there is hope. Hope in a God who can turn any situation and any person around. Hope in a God who can take us from Lodibar and bring us to Jerusalem to sit in the king's palace. The same God is able to do the same thing with any one of us at any time. Lord, we know the devil is real. We know that he is tried. And we recognize, Lord, that he wouldn't fight so hard against us if he wasn't threatened so immensely by us. He knows something about us, that we are soldiers in your army. And that although he has struck, he cannot win because you're walking with us and you're going to turn it around. So for every student here, who has believed the lies of the enemy and even have spoken death against themselves, who've spoken about suicide, who've spoken about running away, who've spoken about giving up, hurting somebody else. In the name of Jesus, we rebuke that. And we say, these are your precious sons and daughters. You allowed the pain 
because you're producing strength in them. And they're going to be used to go back and help folk who've been labeled, counted out. Father, we're trying to be real with you because this world ain't no joke. But Lord, you ain't no plaything either. So raise us up that we can lift up our heads a little higher because we know who's for us and who's in us. Lord God, turn it around for folk. Open up doors. Bring opportunities. Bring mentors. Bring teachers in who care. Thank you for principals who do treat their students like they're their own children. Thank you for administrators in this church who go out into the world to fight for policies to help all people, especially those who are downtrodden. Give them new strength. And may we all have eyes open this week to look for people who have their heads down, to look for people who we don't even know their name, who may be physically disabled, financially destitute, whatever the case. May we show them kindness the way you've shown kindness to us. Now unto him who was able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Can we give God praise? Can we give him honor? Amen. You got to hug three people before you leave. You can't leave until you hug three people. You are dismissed, but you got to hug three people.